Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Please keep in mind that there's always two sides, sometimes more, to every story. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs. Not everybody will agree with them. I never want to tell any guest what to say or what not to say, so there will always be others that see it differently and I understand that. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime, from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I'm still pinching myself. Thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. It's one of the highest risk indicators. If someone strangles someone, there's a big chance they're going to eventually kill them. It's hard for me to get my head around the fact that in Queensland, there's a strangulation trauma centre, which is primarily for victims of domestic and family violence. I just can't get my head around it. It actually shocks me. And Queensland wouldn't be any different to any other state here in Australia. But really, is there that much evidence of strangulation within domestic violence that a designated trauma centre is needed? Like, say, the trauma centre at the Alfred Hospital here in Victoria. Well, there must be, which is a blight on our society. The trauma centre at the Alfred or any other major hospital is for what we all assume a trauma centre is for which is emergency critical care, but strangulation. Today's guest, Betty Taylor, 
has always had a burning passion for helping those dealing with domestic and family violence. It was the injustice of it all, robbing somebody's life because they haven't done or acted in a way demanded by a partner, for instance, which attracted Betty to protecting those who can't protect themselves. She won a Churchill Fellowship to study domestic and family violence, which gave her the opportunity to travel to the US to research and learn more about domestic violence and all it entails. But it's in the US where Betty first learned of the significance and or connection of strangulation to domestic and family violence. I had a guest a couple of months ago, you might recall Kelly Martin, who first spoke of this phenomena, a phenomena that I'd never heard of, I wasn't aware of. Kelly credits much of what she's learned over the years about domestic and family violence through her meeting with my guest today, Betty Taylor. Betty is on committees that none of us want to know or have anything to do with, and probably we've never heard of them, the Child Death Review Board. The Death Review Board. She's the founder of the Red Rose Foundation, a charity supporting victims and or survivors of domestic and family violence, which has recently been partnered by the Strangulation Institute in San Diego, which Betty is and should be very proud of. Don't you think it's amazing that there's something called a Strangulation Institute? God. Anyway, the Red Rose Foundation holds rallies to acknowledge and pay respect to those who've lost their lives to domestic and family violence. Betty revealed to me recently that in one fortnight recently, five deaths were attributed to domestic and family violence in Queensland. That is a shameful and frightening figure. So who is this amazing woman? So let's meet her and welcome Betty and thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Narelle. It's wonderful to be here. Yes, it's uh, wonderful to have you. Now, I believe, uh, just for the listeners, we have uh, we did try and get together last week, but we had a few issues, didn't we, Betty? And this time my listeners may be very surprised to know it wasn't technical because <laughs> that's what I often have. But Betty's uh, son has been involved in the floods and uh, he's been doing it pretty hard, hasn't he, Betty? As you have, no doubt. Yes, and as many have, he... Um lives in Lismore and um, as many of your listeners will know that Lismore was absolutely decimated, that he is one of many people in that community that has lost everything. And until I guess it affects your family, we know people go through floods and bushfires and, but, you know, to just see that whole community of Lismore and um, you know, I think some of the good side of it, Norella, has been the way um, people in that community of Lismore have come together to support each other as well. Um, yeah, but very sad to see, of course. And when you say your son lost everything, do you mean everything, like his home, his car, all that sort of stuff? He left with uh, his car and um, two bags of clothes, that's it. And oh. so... When he went back, everything's just absolutely destroyed. You know, every uh, there wasn't much that's sal- salvageable, and that you know the tragedy with uh, him and many of his friends down there is, um, you know, it's going to take a long time to recover. You know, there's so many houses and homes there that um, <clears throat> they're advising people not to 
even try to go into without it being checked out by a structural engineer. So, yeah, a long road to recovery, but, you know, recover they will. You know, the, that um, if you walk out of any of those things with your life, I think you're doing pretty well. Yes, that's true, and it's easy to say, I know, but uh, I, I think a lot of trouble with um, disasters like this is the survivor guilt. So, you know, where somebody hasn't lost their house and your son has, for instance, you know, that that causes a, a lot of issues in communities that have been, you know, devastated by a natural disaster. Yes, quite possibly it does. But I think also in particularly small communities that, you know, the ones that have fed pretty well, I think, you know, do step up and offer what they are able to um, share and um you know, open up their homes to other people, which is all, you know, part of that healing as well. And I think uh, last week when we decided that it just wasn't the right time, I remember you saying that you really wanted to go and see your son and I just can't imagine not being able to see, you know, to go and help them or something. But as he said, you'd, you'd be in the way, Mum, and with all due respect, you probably would be, Betty, but I can't imagine how difficult that must be. Yes, and we're heading down there now on Monday and, you know, we've got quite a few, uh, almost like a youth that we're taking down now with a whole lot of goods for him and, you know, that he can share around. So, yes, in the early days, more important to get all the emergency services in and, you know, free up the motel accommodation and that for people who need it. So it'll be lovely to get down there. I bet it will. And you were even uh, affected too because you couldn't get into your office. So, but anyway, the, the floods have subsided, but now's the hard work, isn't it? Now That's is, right. well, for the people, for the people in Lismore, for instance, or those that have been affected so, so badly, now is the real tough stuff. Now it's about just accepting what's happened or trying to and just trying to work things out. But, yeah, the stress is really now because it's, all the real big stress is, um, you know, trying to, I don't know, keep your head above water, literally. Literally, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, look, we could talk about the floods all day, um, but I, I suppose we might move on to – I just wanted to talk to you about where your interest in, – you've obviously got a very strong passion – in domestic and family violence. So where does that interest and passion come from? I guess uh, I've always, um, you know, had a passion about um, social injustices, um, you know, knowing what um, parts of our lives and our um, relationships, you know, how important they are. And while I didn't grow up in a home where there was violence, there was um, violence in some of the people around us. And way back then, it didn't even have a name. <clears throat> no one talked about it. And there was a family that lived near us with quite a few children and, um, you know, mum was her support, her only support, and she would come to mum and people used to think, oh, it's only because he drinks a lot or that he's having a hard time. Um, but, you know, he used to, um, as a child, you know, I can remember, you know, the shouts and the screams from that house and just how mum was always there for the for the mother. But 
as she has been. Um, but I think the other part of me growing up too was, um, you know, again, before it even had a name, I think I've been a really strong advocate for women, a really strong, proud feminist. And, um, you know, in the <clears throat> 1980s, I went to work in a women's shelter and, you know, just seeing, you know, women fleeing their homes um, with scant supplies and their children in tow. Um, and back there in the 80s, there wasn't much. There wasn't much that could be done. The, you know, the responses in society was, you know, we talk about behind closed doors and that's how it was. No one wanted to know about it. And, you know, there wasn't even a whole lot of shelters back then. There's a lot more now, thank goodness, and so many more um, services and responses. But, you know, I think it you saw um, the, the strength and resilience in those women, even though they'd come and they'd be, um, you know, quite distressed and in quite a high anxious state, there was still a strongness about them, a resilience. And I think they inspired me to, to you know, join that struggle with them that they weren't doing this on their, on their own. Mm. You know, you're right. It, it's hard to change the way that we've been brought up, isn't it? But I remember I was in the era where when you were brought up and there was an issue going on at home, it's something that you kept within those four walls. You didn't discuss your what went on inside the home anywhere else. It was uh, I was always taught it was no one else's business and that basically we, I mean, and I didn't, we didn't have that much going on in our house. I'm a bit like you. I'm, I'm very, very fortunate in that sense. But I'm just saying we were... It was an era where you didn't share your problems with your friends or with anyone else. You had to deal with it in your own little bubble, didn't you? Absolutely. And, and you know, there was all of that, you know, the, that you stayed within the boundaries of your home. But also, um, you know, there was also that belief that, um, you know, about marriage and you made your bed, you lie in it. You know, it was harder for women to leave um, legally. Um you know, there wasn't the supports there are now for them to be able to leave and get help. Um, you know, I think in a lot of ways society itself back then colluded to keep women um, and kids trapped in those homes that, you know, just made it so hard for them to get out. So thankfully we're gradually um, breaking down a lot of those barriers. Well, I think it's people like yourself and the Red Rose Foundation, which we'll get into shortly, but it is about talking about these things rather than keeping them secret. That's how we learn about domestic violence, about family violence, about drugs, about mental health. That's, that's how we learn to deal with it rather than shoving it away in a corner and not talking about it. Absolutely. You know, we talk a lot about shining the spotlight on domestic violence, bringing it out from those dark corners where it um, stayed hidden, the same with child abuse and child sexual abuse in the homes. You know, we've got to bring them out. And, um, you know, <clears throat> in those sayings that you're talking about, Narelle, I remember people talking about, oh, you know, don't air your dirty laundry, you know, like 
yes, you do need to air your dirty laundry. You know, if you're a victim or a survivor, it's not your dirty laundry. That always belongs to the abuser. You know, the shame isn't your shame. It's the shame of whoever perpetrates those sort of uh, crimes against another person. So I think we've come a long way in turning that around as well. That, But it, for a long time there was a lot of stigma, a lot of shame about talking about, you know, almost that sense of failure that if you failed at marriage, failed at parenthood, etc. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that it's also seen, or it was, maybe as a sign of weakness almost. Um, Yeah, but anyway, look, it, it is changing and because we're talking about it, it just, you know, if it's if it helps one person out there, we're doing a good job. But I've got to say, when you were talking about women's shelters, the first time I ever saw a woman's shelter was when I joined policing. And it it has a it had a huge effect on me to see it became a reality that there were people that were that had to escape violence in the home. And it, it wasn't just what I'd read about. It was I actually saw it. It yes. was a oh, it was a. I remember it made me feel really, um, well, almost sick. Really, just so sad. God. And um, I think it it is that rawness about um, seeing people, you know, at their most vulnerable, at their most frightened, at their um, not just frightened of their abusive partner but frightened for the future, frightened for their children, you know, what's the road ahead Um, and just the emotional overspill. Um, It is very raw and um, but at the same time it gives us, if we're all open to it, an opportunity to, to learn from women. You know, I think that, you know, in my journey, um, uh, you know, I've learned a lot, obviously, through study and academia and, you know, all of those things. But, you know, the, the valuable learning is always coming from women sharing their stories with us. And, you know, we've, there's a richness to that if we keep ourselves open to it. You founded the Red Rose Foundation. Can you uh, enlighten us a bit about why you found it and what services you offer, etc.? Yeah, so where we got the name from, um, it was a Sydney homicide several years ago of a woman who was murdered um, by her ex. She'd done everything to flee from him. She'd hidden, she'd been in contact with police, she'd been to a refuge um, and eventually um, she wanted to be a florist um, but eventually she kept moving and he tracked her down and she came out of her job at a florist shop one day and he was standing by the car with a bunch of red roses and pleaded with her to come back and when she said no she wouldn't be going back he pulled out a gun and shot her and threw the red roses on her body. And I guess, um, you know, myself and colleagues, we started to talk about the red rose, 
you know, as a symbol, what's it mean? Valentine's Day, <clears throat> we all set the shops sell out of red roses. You know, it's that symbol of love, you know, it's on all of the cards and um, everything, the red rose. Um, if, um, you know, an act of violence occurs, you know, part of that cycle of violence is always the buyback. And the buyback is, you know, here's some flowers, here's a bunch of roses, you know, I love you, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I hit you or slapped you around or punched you, raped you, whatever, here's some flowers. And then finally, you know, the flowers that um, end up on someone's coffin. So we looked at the journey of red roses through um, a woman's life and that's where we arrived at that and it's quite um, poignant that in Queensland this week we've had the most horrific inquest into the death of an extremely brave woman, Doreen Langman, and the absolute massive system failures that um, resulted in her death. But one of the things, and you know, it was um, failings by a lot of parts of the system, but particularly through police. And one of the things was she'd had all the locks changed on her house and yet when she came home the house was open again and um, there was a bunch of roses. And, you know, people fail to see the significance of that. You know, they might think, oh, isn't that sweet, he's leaving you flowers. Not that that's actually quite um, a red flag that, he, you know, he's broken into your house and... Um, and this is a guy that had said to her, you've only got three weeks to live. He'd actually articulated the time frame um, and she'd changed locks and he found her and broke in and left these roses. So, you know, I guess here at the Red Rose Foundation that really struck a chord, you know, that we have to see behind the image-making that some of these dangerous perpetrators present to the world Hmm. I think we need to clarify there too that a bunch of flowers can be a beautiful expression uh, of love between two people, whether that be a daughter to her mum or a son to his girlfriend or, you know, all sorts of things. But when it is intrinsically involved in domestic violence, there's your red flag, the fact that somebody is trying to make up for something they've done, like, you know, what have they done? And if there is a history of family violence, that is what you're saying, is that right, Betty, is that that is a real red flag? Absolutely, it's a red flag. And someone who had left and made numerous um, complaints to the police, he'd breached a domestic violence order on several occasions, um, she had expressed how fearful she was. Um, you know, the last thing she'd be wanting is, A, you know, that they overlooked the fact that of stalking, that he broke into her house, he overlooked that, but the overlooking the fact that those flowers, you know, certainly didn't represent love. They represented obsession, a possessiveness, control, I'm not letting you go, but also I can get to you anytime I want to. 
and that's what he was saying to her. Yeah, and and when you talk about, I don't know if you know the case well, Betty, I'd assume you probably do, but when you say there was a failing of a lot of services, do you, do you know what the failing of the police was? Was it that she'd gone there and the police are just thinking she's a, um, oh, here she comes again complaining about her husband? Like, yes. Do you know what that, yeah, okay. She had been, and look, this will come out in the, today's the last day of the inquest, it's gone for a week, and some of these, um, you know, be interesting next week or the week after when we see the findings, but already there's been such gay comments about the police and the commissioner herself is saying, you know, the police, she said she owned it, the police um, actually failed. They failed, that woman failed to protect her. She'd been to three different police stations and spoke to 16 police officers <gasps> and, you know, only one took her seriously. Only one out of 16 took her seriously to the point that... Um, she was told only to come in once a week to report a breach, that she was seen and women, you know, with really heightened, um, when they're ho- facing heightened risk and, um, you know, they begin to be seen as the problem, oh, not this person again. Um, instead of seeing, hang on, we've got to stop here and do something, it's not the problem's not going away. We've got to start to listen to what she's telling us. And she did everything possible, as I said, she changed the locks, she changed the registration on a car. You know, she was trying to protect herself the best possible way that she could. Um, but it um, you know, at the end she lost her life, you know, and needlessly. Um you know, one officer even on a video on a body worn camera um, said to her, "You look okay. You're not covered in blood." You know, so just even the lack of really true understanding of what domestic and family violence is—that um, what you know—you um, don't have to be covered in blood to be extremely fearful of somebody. You know, to me, you can make all the excuses in the world for maybe her going to a police station a couple of times, but anybody would struggle or you couldn't justify 16 times going and speaking to the police. And to me, that says that there is something very wrong or something immediate that we have to do at the academy about the attitude of domestic violence. To actually, for a woman to go to the police station, I would imagine to report domestic violence would be difficult enough, but to have been virtually, I suppose, turned around 16 times, that's not just one, that's not just one officer. That is, there is a um, there is a real problem in the attitude of the police. And I think it all goes back to, well, it goes back to um, us as people caring about other people, but they've got to do something at the academy. They've, it's got to be seen for what it is. Like it's, it is serious, um, potentially 
uh, fatal violence. And the tragedy of a lot of these deaths, um, Narelle, you know, sit on the Queensland Domestic Violence Death Review Board and I say they're two things, they're predictable and preventable. Um, the ones that, you know, come out of the blue, so to speak, would be so rare with all of these, somebody knows something and invariably they've gone to the police or to other agencies, to family and friends, even to their doctor. People do know. And, um, you know, in our analysis of those deaths, I think we've found the average number of contacts with agencies. It's not the number of agencies but the number of contacts was 28 prior to a homicide. Some were a lot higher, but that was the average. And it sort of shows that, you know, um, you know, not laying fault at individuals, but systemically something's critically wrong. And when you say an average of 28 with a homicide, are you saying is that police contact or is that with agencies, assorted agencies? Assorted agencies, Narelle. It could, okay. it could be across, you know, many agencies multiple times, um, you know, including health services and child protection, etc. But, um, you know, people failing to share information, um, various applications of risk analysis, etc. I think we've been we've all got a bit hung up about privacy legislation because if some I'm not saying all but if some of those agencies may have shared their concerns with Doreen maybe the red flags would have been uh, heard or seen a lot earlier but and I understand people you know privacy is a very it's a very big thing but when somebody is seeing 28 different people, oh, the 28 different times, yeah. not 28 different people. I think, but, um, yeah. I think we can hide behind privacy as well. Look, Queensland does have information sharing legislation, um, but it's very restrictive to who. But I think that, um, you know, if you ask victims, I think they'd rather you ask. There's some that say, no, you don't have my permission to talk to the police. Etc. But I think on the whole, people want to stay alive. You know, women want to be alive. And if they do have hesitancy about sharing information, it's because they're fearful. They're fearful it could make it worse. Yeah, yeah. and often and often it does. Yes. And if, if there's not somebody at home to protect her, uh, it by it often it exacerbates the situation doesn't it yes so, it can for sure and if there's not um you know if they're um stepping out to talk to um police or anyone else going to court for instance if they're stepping out to do that you know they we need to give them the confidence that they've made the right decision but a safe decision you know, it's that whole thing, um, Narelle, of, you know, um, it's social work language, but it's, you know, do no harm. If we can't in ourselves know that what I'm doing is going to be more helpful and harmful, then don't do it. 
you know, we've got to be able to do that assessment in our head before we jump into things. Mm. Mm. So what sort of services does Red Rose Foundation or the Red Rose Foundation um, offer? Okay, where, where we started was yeah, I did a Churchill Fellowship, which I believe 20 years ago, and they were talking over there about um, the strangulation um, in the context of domestic violence and I was just really shocked at the things they did. I did some training and workshops and came back to Australia here in Queensland and started talking to colleagues and we weren't even aware that such a thing was happening. And So we started to ask women and we were absolutely shocked at what they uh, were telling us. And then we started to talk to police and others about well, if a woman talks about that, and everyone was just using the word choking and we said, oh, that's the first thing we have to do is dump that language of choking. It's choking's what happens on a fishbone, not when someone tries to strangle you. And so we started to say what charges might police um, use if, if, the, if, if there is no framework for doing it. And it was very vague and they were saying they'd probably look at um, assault or if, um, you know, it was um, really serious, maybe grievous bodily harm or if she was unconscious and um, in a bad state it could be attempted murder, but it was all really vague and we were saying, but with strangulation, um, and this may sh- shock a lot of your listeners, Narelle, um, only probably 50% of the injuries are visible most of them are internal. So if you're using the body as a piece of evidence, you're not going to get a lot of external. And when we looked at what the legislation in the States was about, we thought this makes sense. We've got to really progress this, that, you know, they were the findings of research. It's one of the highest um, risk indicators. If someone strangles someone, there's a big chance they're going to eventually kill them. So we um, started the campaign to get a standalone domestic violence offence called strangulation, and that came into being in 2016. Um, Where that works is that um, unlike other crimes, particularly attempted murder, people were saying, "Come, can we just have attempted murder? Um, we said, no, with attempted murder, you've always got to look at motive. Uh, strangulation, no motive, just the fact that the person was strangled. Um, and what we've done then with the education, because it's, um, you know, the offence is there, but how do we get that through the courts? And but better still, how do we get better treatment for victims? So... You know, we've done a lot of training too around for ourselves and and the training we take out to others is to around. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. 
Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Health City, you know, ED departments, etc. that, um, you know, Victims of strangulation need specific tests to pick up internal injuries. And one of the things um, Narelle and it did come out of Victorian research was um, when women are hospitalised out of domestic violence, 61% have injuries to the neck and above. And you mentioned earlier about, you know, places that... um, treat people with head trauma and a lot of that's car accidents and sport etc but no one much is recognizing the trauma the head trauma of uh, coming from domestic violence and some of that head trauma can be you know if they're hit across the head with weapons or sharp implements thrown against walls downstairs but we're now finding, you know, we've got to start looking at what's called an oxic brain injury when women are unconscious and the lack of um, oxygen and blood to the, the brain and the damage that that's doing. And these are all the things that aren't visible. So we're supporting women through that legal justice process with police and charges and when matters go to the higher court, but we're wanting um, 
better health responses to women who've been strangled as well. So would would a woman that had been strangled uh, or let's say she's been uh, she's in a domestic violence situa- violence situation would it be generally the woman that would ring the Red Rose Foundation or would it more be, say, your emergency department at the hospital or who would normally ring you? Yeah, it could be um, anywhere. We could get um, referrals from directly from police. It could be the women themselves. It may be when they go to a shelter that the shelter workers ring or community groups or our child protection Um yeah, it could come from a number of sources. We we are finding that um, women who, um, sorry, people who have done our training and become more aware of strangulation are the ones that are much more likely to pick it up and um, do a lot of referrals when they see how dangerous it is. The US research is showing that if a woman's been strangled, they're about 800 times more likely to end up dying to be killed. They're pretty frightening statistics, aren't they? They are frightening, Morel, and they're frightening to know that, um, you know, um, it, and we still call it recent times with our legislation that, um, you know, that there's so much we didn't know and people often say to us, well, Betty, why did you have to have a specific piece of legislation? And I can say in all honesty, I, it's not just that we're picking up this dangerous behaviour and doing an intervention with um, these offenders, but it is an incredible um, educational way for the community, but for victims themselves. They are unique. We run at our centre, we also run support groups um, that are solely for survivors of strangulations and women have that shared experience that they can talk about, you know, saying, oh, look, I didn't realise it was like this. And then to hear women, we've got, we've done our first piece of research that will be coming out soon and hopefully starting more, but to hear women around saying, I could have died. And one woman said, I just cannot get over the fact that someone who professed to love me was trying to kill me. You know, I'm lying on the floor with these hands around my neck. I thought I was going to die. And so women, months and months later, are finding out they've got things like um, vocal cord dysfunction, problems with uh, cracked um, hyoid bone, hearing, sight, all these things that now we know come from strangulation. You know, I am, I've just had a light bulb moment just when you're talking now and, God, it's, it's really um, uh, shocked me. I had an investigation, uh, a missing person and the, the lovely Lorraine. Lorraine was um, a very vulnerable woman. She had, uh, um, she was born with a whole lot of disabilities but she managed to you know, lead a, you know, a pretty good life and she met this man and her parents didn't like her, him from the start and uh, she went missing about, oh, I think, about 10 years ago now. We've never found her. Mm-hmm. But I'm just thinking to myself, yeah, but I'm just thinking to myself now, 
I remember taking a statement from her uh, at one, uh, somebody took a statement, it wasn't me, sorry. Um, but the bottom line is she had told her mum that her husband had tried to strangle her. And I'm just thinking now, my God, that is, I mean, I always knew that strangulation, that, that somebody attempting to choke somebody was, you know, terribly serious. But there's another example because she uh, wet herself, she was that distraught and that frightened that she wet herself. And I think to myself, my goodness, that is, that's in front of our faces that he tried to strangle her. And I never put two and two together. Did she wet herself and she's gone under the strangulation, Narelle? Yes. Yep. One of the things through our training and that we talk to police and um, doctors and particularly ambulance about and you know, this is where it brings shame to to um, victims and they won't want to talk about it. But if a victim, they attend a scene and a victim has urinated or defecated, their body is shutting down. They've been unconscious for a considerable time. It is so, that is it, it's so close. And again, the US, you know, when they talk about uh, some of these men as being high-risk offenders, you know, they talk about not if they kill but when. It's um, And one of the things that we're now looking at is um, the suicides of women and particularly, you know, this is um, not in my work. It's a particular thing for me. We could have a talk another day, but I get really concerned about... Um, the suicides of women where they're um, supposedly suicided by hanging themselves, you know, I just... That's very, 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 very unusual, a woman hanging herself. And particularly Mm. when there's a history of domestic violence, you know, um, it, yeah, certainly bothers me that um, we have, um, you know, there's... um, some people in the States call it getting away with murder, you know, where it gets staged, but oh, yeah. um, it's not something we can go at. So the work we do with the women is long-term, um, you know, helping women prepare for court. Um, we do a lot of, obviously, we do a lot of trauma counselling um, and a lot of initially people might think they've got P- PTSD and trauma, but uh, from an oxic brain injury, um they will have a lot of memory loss if they're making statements um, to the police and others. They probably won't remember things in sequential order. They will forget appointments. Um, you know, they can often forget what they've been told. Um, so, you know, their journey onward, they struggle um, to concentrate at work. There's so many of our women um, have not been able to return to full-time work even though they had professional careers. Um, it's a devastating, devastating form of violence and we actually need to keep pulling it out of the, um, the you know, those dark corners of domestic violence. The cupboards, yeah, yeah. Oh, gee. It, is there anybody that you won't help uh, with the Red Rose Foundation? Like in, if somebody rings or... Yeah, let's say if somebody rings or whatever, is there anybody you won't see? 
Um, what we confine it to is um, in Queensland, our legislation is very specific to our Domestic and Family Violence Protection Act. So we do need to keep it to that. But what we will do is still talk to people about, a lot of people don't want to go down the track of police and courts. So they still need to know about um, strangulation. They still need to know that they uh, need to go and get it assessed either in an ED department or through their doctor. Um, they need to know, you know, some of the tests that they could be asking for, um, you know, encourage them to come to our website and read up about strangulation. Um, but, yeah, just being mindful that, it, you know, something very serious has happened to them that could have been potentially lethal. Mm. Can you tell us about the rallies that you have? Okay. Um, the rallies now are in their 12th year, um, you know, picking up on our symbol of um, the red roses. Um, you know, we often know, um, Narelle, when, when somebody dies, um, you know, it's really how the media want to talk about that. So some of some deaths can garner a lot of media attention, others not such a lot. And, you know, we wanted to be able to say, like, every one of these deaths shouldn't have happened. So we started to have roses. We asked people to wear black and bring their red rose. Um, and we started to meet outside of Parliament House um, and there was only a few of us 12 years ago that did that. But 12 years on, we meet after every single domestic homicide and we um, have them now, I think, in about eight places around the state uh, where people come out to say, you know, it's not a protest, it's just saying, here's someone in our community, we've got to acknowledge this. Um, and so... Some of them have been really quite big rallies and some not so big, but to me it's not a numbers. It's about that consistency that we're there every time. But the other project that's um, more positive for your listeners might be interested um, and, you know, we've got... It's starting to spread into other states, so we'd love it to go further. Um Two years ago, we started what we call the Red Bench Project where we were asking, it started with local government, to have red benches in prominent places, in parks, walkways, etc. And the sign on it says, "Let domestic violence, let's change the ending. And we would have our logo from the Red Rose Foundation and whatever logo people wanted to put on it. Um, we've now got over 300 of those red benches, um, both in Queensland, some in New South Wales and a couple in Victoria, where, um, you know, the benches now have gone from local government, they're into schools, they're into hospitals, um, you know, they're into churches, etc. You know, the you know, men's sheds are making them, um, people are gathering around them, um, so we furthered that program now with conversations on the red bench. You know, how do people in their community have that conversation? You know, we have 
awareness programs that are really big, but until we get to grassroots. So, Narelle, you'll be pleased to hear there's a lot outside police stations. Just where we're... Lovely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's lovely. Oh, I do like to hear that, yeah. There's quite a lot outside of police and some of them are in very, very small communities. There's, um, you know tiny, tiny communities in central Queensland with a population of about 200 and they've got a red bench there, you know, which I think is just beautiful. And they're over on, you know, our Moreton Bay Islands, they're everywhere and now people see them and they know what they are and the message is consistent. But we're asking people so, um, you know, people use them in different ways. They might have events around the bench but, you know, in one of our remote communities, People, you know, it was that if people wanted to get help, they can sit on the bench, you know, like it it is how different communities want to use them, but it's really been extremely positive way of getting that consistent message out there. But it's also a way of starting that conversation, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely of, of you know, um, because I think that if we're going to turn this around, it's every single one of us. You know, we can't keep looking to politicians or high-profile identities. Every single one of us can be part of the change. And, you know, that change comes slow, but now we're getting the benches into schools. Some of them are being made by the students, which I think is amazing. Um, yeah, we've all got a role to play in that and I think it's it's been really positive. Mm. So in Queensland, do you know what sort of services are available for those who commit the domestic and family violence? And I know that there's going to be many listeners and particularly victims of domestic and family violence who aren't going to care about the offenders and I get that. But it's a bit like the Red Benches if we can help those who commit the violence and uh, start them, oh, I don't know, talking to somebody about their issues, uh, that would have to help in minimising the number of uh, domestic and family violence uh, victims. So I suppose my point there is getting to the grassroots is actually getting to the offenders, these people that are committing the the domestic violence. So, yeah, I'll go back to my question. So do you know if there's any services available for those who commit it? Yeah, there's quite a few. We've got a state state line, men's line. Um, There is also funded programs that run groups um, for behaviour change. Um, and then there's a lot of, um, you know, young people's um, educational programs like um, around positive relationships, um, et cetera, that go into the schools. I think we need a lot more. But, you know, I think um, what's out there is great, but, it, you know, I think we always need a lot more. I think that, um, no, you're right, we can't just keep building more and more services for victims even though they're needed while at the same time we've got to address what's going on out there. Yeah, that's true. So 
What are some of the common behaviours which a domestic and family violence victim should be careful of? I think we've discussed this before, we've spoken about it briefly, is what you call toxic love. Yes. Can you give us some examples of that? I think um, that toxic love, like people often think, you know, and talk about that parent, that coercive control, but, um, you know, going through the phones and that, that's quite topical at the moment. But it doesn't start like that. I don't believe it. I think that it's nearly like that overbearing love that, you know, um, where someone's feeling very early in the relationship, um, it's nearly like that whole confusion, that grand um, profession of love that's nearly smothering, wanting to spend a lot of time with them, um, you know, giving them messages that if you love me too, you'd spend more time with me than with your friends. Um, you know, it's just you and I together and I think then sometimes when before women know it, you know, they're just completely smothered. Sometimes that can go slowly, sometimes it can go quick, um, but it's an enormous red flag because then, you know, when they want to get out from underneath that, it's really going to be problematic. So I suppose in, in you saying that many victims of domestic and family violence, uh, from what I've spoken about with you, with Kelly, with a number of other people, is that a lot of times the victims don't seem to see that toxic relationship that they're in. But do you think that they do see it and ignore it because maybe they don't know what to do? Uh, or do you think they might think that, uh, you know, it's my bed, I've, I've made the bed, I, you know, I, I lie in it? You know, like, is it learned behaviour? Is it the, what they think is this is what I deserve? I think that um, initially, um, you know, they can be just um, swept away by them. You know, there can be a lot of um, good times, you know, um, spending money on them, going out, you know, um, great pre- um, professions of love. No one's ever loved me like he loves me. Um, not understanding what love is, and I think initially they do. They get caught up in it. You know, we produced a video that's on YouTube called Deadly Love, Deadly Romance. Sorry, you know, it's still the romancing, but it's it's um, not seen, not been able to see it. You know, one of the victims on there says, "I couldn't see it. I was so caught up in it." It's like a magical world. I'm all caught up in it and then by the time you see it, you're trapped. You know, it's that feeling of being trapped there. And particularly if it's a relationship where maybe uh, her own friends or her own mum and dad um, saw it and didn't like him and sort of saying, no, don't like him, I think you, you want need to get out of there, whatever, I think then it's like, her own sense of failure, you know, I'll go back to people and say, no, you're right. I think that even if we say things, we've got to go gently about, you know, I'm really concerned about you, I'm here if you need to talk to me um, because we don't want to ever cut people off from that as well. 
but often, yeah, people outside of it, you know, listening to them, let them be the mirror of what's happening. Let them be, you know, and if you've got really good friends, you know, finding the time and place to be able to, to talk to them about the changes. You know, we used to spend a lot of time together and this is how I'm seeing it. Um, yeah, I think it, you know, it, and sometimes people want to be able, want to believe that, you know. I say if he seems too good to be true, he probably is, you know, like it's wanting to, um, so it becomes then, you know, when we talk about coercive control, um, those controlling behaviours there, but the biggest question to be asking people, how free do you feel? Can you speak freely? Can you speak your mind? You're allowed to have opinions. What happens if you don't agree? I think some of those are the biggest um, issues we need to be making sure we're educating and asking about because that's what breeds fear. You know, are you shut down the minute you want to express an opinion? Um, are you feeling that you just aren't yourself around that person anymore? Yeah, they're hard questions to ask, but probably to yourself, but probably even harder to answer. Yes. <laughs> you know, if you're true to yourself, you know, to actually admit that that, that is how you feel, that'd be pretty scary stuff. Yes, is this person starting to overshadow you? Are you feeling, mm. you know, that thing about being smothered? Are you feeling that, you know, you've each got your own um, space within a relationship? You know, I often think that's so important that people, you know, have the freedom to have a bit of space as well. Yeah, it, it, they don't own you and you don't own them. That's right. So, And that's probably leading into my next question, actually, because I was going to ask you, uh, for those who are stuck in a domestic and family violence situation or think that their partner is exhibiting worrying signs, what sort of advice do you have for those for those people? I think that anyone um, who's currently in, in the relationship, you know, no matter where you were around Australia, um, you know, 1800 respect, if you go to their website, you know, the full numbers are there, you know, talk to somebody. Um, you know, don't challenge your partner till you know. Um, you know, just get some advice uh, quietly for yourself and take your time, you know. But if you feel, by the same token, if you feel frightened, if you ever feel threatened, um, then certainly, um, you know, talk to people about getting a safety plan. And, you know, the biggest thing, Narelle, is if someone's, feeling smothered, feeling that that person is um, just so dominating and domineering and controlling, then certainly if you want to end that relationship, get advice, go so, so carefully because uh, leaving a relationship is the highest risk action someone can do and that's consistently shown in research but it's also shown through our death reviews that, you know, women who are murdered have either left or in the process of leaving. So, um, you know, get that advice but get a safety plan. And what about those those friends or the family that are concerned about the safety of 
of that person, the person that they really love or admire or like? I think if family and friends are, are concerned, I think they need to reach out and get advice as well, again, to be ringing those um, support lines, but also there's a lot of information online um, for, you know, family, friends, neighbours. Um, doing nothing isn't helpful. Um, you know, often after a homicide, uh, people will say, oh, yeah, we were really worried about it or we often heard screams coming from that house. Um we're saying you've got to do something, but you've got to be able to do it safely. So even if it's, you know, if you know um, a domestic violence service in your area or police or that national line to talk to someone, get the advice first so you can be supportive of that person but not endangering them um, or yourself. But just to be able to step out and say, you know, um, you know, I often hear things. I don't think that, you know, if you're ever needing anyone to talk, I'm here. If you, um, you know, if I think things are really escalating, I'll have no problem ringing the police. You know, to be able to talk to them because I think if they were screaming last night, they're probably really self-conscious about that today and are worried what your reaction might be. Mm. You know, children of uh, domestic and family violence are often the forgotten, even ignored victims. Are there support services for those secondary victims? Because the long-term effects can be catastrophic with kids. Absolutely, and that's why, you know, there's organisations like Kids Helpline and various other places that, um, you know, but the, the general funded domestic violence services, a lot of them have children's counsellors as well that children need to be able to um, speak to someone in independently and they will need their own safety plan because kids often, um, they'll love dad but hate what he's doing. They'll love mum but then they'll be angry that she's not doing anything to protect herself by us. What a, what a dilemma for a little kid to have you know, about loving dad but I don't like what he does to mum or I don't like it when he drinks or I don't like it, you know, when he gets angry or, oh, but they are they are forgotten a lot. Oh, absolutely. In, even at court, they're just put in the real, well, they used to be and I think it's changed and I hope it's changed, but they really were the forgotten victims in all of this. It has a huge effect on the kids. One of the things that we're just starting um with Narelle and, you know, just scratching the surface is that, um, and it's coming from the women themselves, you know, if these guys strangle their partner, they'll, they'll be doing it to the kids. And it will be different. It might be grabbing them around the throat to throw, pin them up against the wall or grabbing the back of their shirts to pull them across the room, but it'll be there in some shape, you know, Police language, we call it the modus operandi. If they start to use strangulation as a tool, that's what they'll keep doing. So are you saying that if the, if the person, if let's say the, the victim is a, fem a female, so if she is strangled or the husband puts his hands around her throat, are you saying that it's quite common that the kids are also going to be uh, their upper, like their neck, is going to be... It can be. Uh, it can be. 
in Australia. It's almost too hard. It's almost too hard to ask. I know. Yeah, yeah. We had a webinar. um, We had a webinar last year, and um, we had a paediatrician from the states that's really starting to pick this up and do a fair bit of work around it. Um, We're just now starting those conversations and talking with the women about it. We've got an awful long way to go, but it's something Mm. we're going to keep on the radar because it's really concerning to us. Mm. I'm just thinking I was at a a function last night where there was a a discussion, I suppose, about a guy by the name of down here, Robert Farquharson, and he killed his three children as to get back to his wife because of um, you know issues between him and his wife, and that also happened with a, a terrible domestic violence situation up there with um, Hannah. Yes. Uh, what's Hannah's last? Yeah, oh, that Kelly yeah. spoke about. That's right, Hannah Clark. Yeah, and so uh, how often? Does that happen a lot where the perpetrator will use the children as pawns in the relationship? Oh, a lot, a lot. You know, sometimes obviously not to the point of killing them, but, yes, yes. often they are that the children are, you know, traded off and I think our family court, well, that's probably a whole other conversation, but our family court, you know, badly lets down um, children, badly. You said you're a, a member of a number of boards, including the Child Death Review Board. Uh, can you tell um, us about that? Yeah, I'm no longer on the Child Death Review Board. I resigned from it, I think, just because, you know, the two death reviews was incredibly overwhelming. The Child Death Review Board looks at mainly the deaths of children that have been known to our Department of Child Safety. So they're usually kids where child safety has known of them um but obviously a lot of them a lot there's domestic violence occurring um around that oh that's terrible to think that we've even have got to have a review board really but anyway look uh, betty thank you so much for everything that you are doing for domestic and family violence in queensland but also it's got a um a, what's that word a a roll-on effect, hasn't it? Because what you're doing about strangulation up there, it's starting to, uh, the rolling stone gathers moss, doesn't it? And I think the more that we can talk about this difficult subject, the more people, you know, maybe there's women out there and men maybe in, you know, violent relationships uh, where they are, you know, strangulation is an issue. And I think we need to be aware of it. But anyway, look, uh, thank you so much, Betty. Thank you. I think, we better, I think we better have you back again. Oh, I'd love that. I'd love that. And, um, you know, it'd be lo- lovely to meet you sometime as well. I'm sure, I'm sure that'll happen. All right. Thanks again, Betty. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us.
we have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Hello, guess who? Just a quick interruption here to let you know you can now become a Narelle Fraser Interviews Patreon. How exciting! Simply go to www.patreon, that's P for Peter, A T R E O N for Narelle.com and search for Narelle Fraser Interviews. And to all of you out there who continue to support me, thank you so much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.